Well, good morning, Capitol Hill Baptist Church. It is a great pleasure for me to be here today with you. This uh, church was a special place and is a special place in my heart. In 2014, I was pleased to be here for a weekender event and met Pastor Mark Dever. And the effect of both that meeting and in subsequent relationships has been catalytic for my church in Indianapolis, for my relationships, my understanding of the church. So just so you know, this church has had a really, really helpful influence in my life and in the church in which I serve. And so it's a real pleasure to be with you here today. I want to invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to Psalm 77 and follow along as I read our text this morning. Psalm 77, the title of my message is The Grace of Lament. Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let, my, let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then, I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the world. When your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is God's word. Seated in a car outside of a doctor's office, my wife and I were devastated again. We closed the car door, and in that moment, I knew we needed to pray. I looked at my wife, and I said, do you want to pray? And she said, I'll try. And here's what she prayed. God, I know you're not mean, but it feels like it today. We had just come from a doctor's appointment that was supposed to reveal life in her womb. 
that after multiple miscarriages and in the exact same office, in the exact same ultrasound room, we heard the words that rocked our world, I'm sorry, even though your daughter, a few days before delivery in utero, was alive last week, her heartbeat has stopped. And so over the course of a year and a half, we went from the stillbirth of a baby girl, her name was Sylvia, multiple miscarriages, and now this doctor's appointment was supposed to confirm that there was life in her womb. The pregnancy tests were all positive. This was supposed to be the moment that in the same room that we saw a heart that was no longer beating, we were supposed to see the grainy flutter of new life. And in that moment, the doctor put the wand on my wife's womb, and an ashen look appeared on his face, and he said, I'm sorry, I don't know how to tell you this, but there's no baby there. And so we left that doctor's appointment, we went into the parking lot, we closed the door, and numb, and frightened, panicked, and deeply hurting, we needed to pray. We needed to pray. But what do you pray in a moment like that? What my wife prayed was a lament. So here's the thing. Although I had been a student of the Bible for many years, been the pastor of a church, lament as a language was new to me. In fact, I didn't even know what to call it at a time. It took some time for me to even understand what was going on in our soul. My quest for spiritual survival in the midst of a long season of grief opened my heart to this historic, biblical form of prayer. And so in a strange way, sorrow tuned my heart to the song of lament. And that's what I hope happens for you today. I started on a journey to try and learn the grace of lament. What I've discovered along my journey is that while crying is very natural for us human beings, it's how we entered the world, lament, the kind that is biblical, honest, and redemptive, is not quite as natural. In fact, for many Christians, lament is rather unfamiliar. Strange, though, because over a third of the Psalms are lament. Think of that. One out of every three song in the sacred book, sacred songbook of God's people is this minor key song. So why talk about lament? Let me give you a few reasons before we get into Psalm 77. First, friends, pain is inevitable and good pastors prepare you for pain in the future. I want to prepare you not only for the time when you will suffer personally and there will come a day when you will need this prayer language. If today you are here and you're like, I, I've never needed to lament, you're just not old enough yet. <laughs> I don't say that to somehow make you look toward your future with a pale and very concerning eye, but the reality is the human life is marked by sorrow. Second reason is this, pain creates very strong emotions and I want you to know what to do with them. How to be able to take those emotions, which are real and legitimate, and to realize in that moment you are never more Christian in terms of your pursuit of God than when in the midst of deep sorrow you say to Jesus, I still trust you. But when strong sorrows come, how do you get to the point where you move from this really hurts, man this hurts, but I know you are good. Third, friends, sometimes pain doesn't go away quickly. And therefore, 
You need to learn, some of you, how to live in the long marathon run of lament. I hope today to show you how lament helps you to live between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. How to be able to live in the space of hard is hard, but hard is not bad because of Christ. So the question I want you to wrestle with today is, do you know what to do with your pain? Or do you know what to do with the pain of others? Do you know what to do with the pain of an entire community? Because part of the value of learning the language of lament is not only to deal with your own sorrow when it comes, but also to know how to help a friend, how to pray alongside them, what to say and what not to say. And so lament is that language, a very, very helpful language in the Bible. So today what I want to simply do is help you understand this lament psalm and encourage you, exhort you, call you to put lament into practice however it applies in your individual experience. So let me define lament. A short definition would be this, that lament simply is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. You're going to see this in this psalm. The psalmist is praying in pain, but he prays in his pain so that he can go somewhere. He doesn't pray in his pain just to stay in his pain. No, he prays in his pain and talks to God about his sorrow so that it will lead him somewhere. Laments typically involve four elements because it's poetry, because it's music. You can't look at this simply as a linear equation, but laments generally have these four areas or elements. It involves turning to God in prayer. In my pain, I turn to you. I keep talking to God. Secondly, they involve bringing our complaints, asking boldly for God's help, and choosing to trust. So turn, complain, ask, and trust. And this morning in Psalm 77, I want to show you the the grace of lament by showing you three of those elements. Turn, complain, and trust. The psalmist in 77 sort of combines the asking and the trusting into one category. So first, turn to prayer. Notice Psalm 77 begins with this turn. He says, I cry aloud to God. And then the hymn writer Asaph repeats himself, aloud to God and he will hear me. The psalm starts this way in order to frame the tone of this particular text. He's in pain. But notice And this is extremely important. In fact, for some of you, this will be the one takeaway from this morning's message. Even though he is in pain, he is not silent in his praying. He takes his pain, and he refuses to allow his pain to create a moment where he gives God the silent treatment. He keeps talking to God, even though he is hurting, and even though it is messy. So lament is a prayer, and the first step in learning to lament is we turn to God in prayer while we are in pain. He says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. Notice the sharpness of his words in verse 2. In the day of trouble, notice the orientation of his heart. I seek the Lord. It's as though the psalmist, in the midst of his pain, is not going to lean away from God. He's going to lean into God. He will not allow the enemy to have victory in his life such that this pain causes him to stiff arm his creator. No, instead, he uses pain as a platform to say, God, I need your help. I need you. I need you. Pain is a hard but helpful reminder that 
Humanity lives on the thin ice of our limitations. And when pain comes, we are reminded that we are not in control. He says, in verse 2, in the night, notice this, my hand is stretched out. This is a prayer position. My hand is stretched out without wearying. But notice this. This is really important. My soul refuses to be comforted. So notice, he refuses to give up. He keeps praying. He reaches out his hand in prayer, and yet his prayers, apparently in the text, aren't working emotionally. But he keeps praying. In the midst of his discomfort, in the midst of his disappointment, he refuses to stop praying. So while we don't know what the source of his pain was, we can see that he's struggling, and we'll talk more about this in a moment. But what I want you to see just right from the outset here, this this turning to God in the midst of our pain is incredibly significant because to lament with all of its messy struggles and with all of its tough questions is actually an act of faith where you open your heart to God while you are still filled with fear, with doubts, with questions. So some of you think, wait a minute, to to lament, that sounds like you're being faithless. Oh, that is not true. In fact, lament is one of the most costly demonstrations of our faith. To lament is part of what it means to be Christian. Perhaps some of you in the back of your mind are thinking, wait a minute, isn't like this sort of heartfelt talking to God this way, just kind of bordering on maybe something that's moderately or really sinful? And I would suggest to you that Jesus himself prayed a lament prayer. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? He quoted Psalm 22. Even our Lord prayed lament prayers. So I want to establish from the outset that prayerful lament, with all of its tensions, all of its messiness, all of the sort of doubts and struggles that are implicit within it, is better than something else. Friends, lament is better than silence. My experience in pastoring a church and in working through my own grief, I found that many Christians, maybe most Christians, when grief happens to them, they tend to go to one of two ditches. On the one hand is the ditch of denial. On the other hand is the ditch of despair. Denial comes to church and says, in the midst of your pain, oh, everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine. Because some people think that real Christianity is projecting an image that joyfulness means denying how hard things are. And so they project an image, everything's fine, everything's fine. On the other hand is the despair where someone in the midst of their pain has deep struggles and hard questions and they begin to think, real Christians don't ask these questions. And if I struggle like this, and if I hurt like this, then maybe what I believe is not really what I believe. And what lament does is lament walks the middle road between denial and despair as one of the most costly and profound demonstrations of belief in God's sovereignty. One writer says this, listen carefully, a lament honestly and specifically names a situation or a circumstance that is painful, that is wrong, that is unjust. In other words, we name a situation or a circumstance that does not align with God's character and therefore does not make sense within God's kingdom. 
In other words, of all the people on the planet, the one group of people who ought to be lamenting are Christians. In fact, I would suggest to you that to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. Why? Because Christians know, God, you're good. How does this fit? You're victorious. You can do anything. And yet this has happened. And Christianity lives in the gap between promise made and promise fulfilled. And what is the language between the poles of God? You made this promise, and yet this has not yet been fulfilled. That's the language of lament. It's the cry of a hurting, pain-filled, yet believing heart. Lament is an act of faith where we resist the temptation to stop talking to God because we're angry with him. In an audience this size, there's some of you who have stopped praying because you are mad that God hasn't answered your prayer, and therefore you won't talk to him about it anymore. And what you don't know is your silence is actually a statement of unbelief. The enemy may have, convinced, may have convinced you that God doesn't care about you in this category. Or there's some of you who, candidly, you're trying to believe, but there are things that you've prayed about that the answer has been historically no, 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 no. And you just can't even bear to talk to God about it anymore because to talk to him requires daring to hope again. The book of Lamentations, one of the longest laments in the Bible, the New Living Translation, renders Lamentations 3 this way, I will never forget this awful time, and yet I still dare to hope. That's what lament does. Lament says, God, I am not going to give you the silent treatment. So friend, can I just ask you, is there anything in your life that you've stopped talking to God about? Any questions that you are wrestling with that you think it's not okay to express to God? Have those questions begun to sort of land in your soul such that the orientation of your heart as it relates to how you think about God has begun to head down a particular path? Or maybe there's someone near you in your sphere of relationship influence who is lamenting and you need to help them a little differently in light of this text and realize what's happening in that brother or sister's soul if they are simply expressing the, the gut-level honesty of the struggle to fight for faith. Maybe you have a friend who's really struggling. They pray things that kind of make you wince. Can I just encourage you to be a good friend, and before you jump in too quickly and shush them in their grief, remind yourself, at least they're praying. It's a start. Because prayers of lament take faith. Because pain or tough questions, they're not always solved quickly. And lament is the language that helps to carry us along. So in this text, first we see the psalmist turning to God in his pain. Friend, turn to God in your pain. Keep turning to him. Secondly, we see in this text that the psalmist brings his complaints. Now, some of you immediately have your guard up. Complaining, that sounds like it's a negative thing. And it could be sinfully so, for sure. But in this text, we find a category of biblical complaint. Look at verse 2 again. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. He says, you hold my eyelids open. It's like he's sleeplessness. He's, he's struggling with insomnia. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. 
So here's the thing, the psalmist is praying, but the challenge is, is that his prayers are not producing comfort. He's praying because he knows he should, but encouragement or rest or resolution feels like a long way off. And yet, praise God, he is praying. Grief is not tame. And lament cannot be used like a linear equation, but it's helpful because lament is where you go with your pain, believing that someday, somehow, God is going to make all of this right. Lament is how you live and where you live when your life is not turning out like a Hallmark movie. You familiar with this genre, Hallmark movies? We have three boys who are now out of the home, and I reside with a mother-in-law, a wife, and a 13-year-old daughter. <laughs> In order to survive this unique family culture, you must be accustomed to Hallmark movies in all of their excellence <laughs> and annoying predictability. <laughs> One of my favorite things to do to drive my wife and my daughter crazy is when they have a show on, I walk in and go, oh, I know what's going to happen. He's going to marry her. And they're like, be quiet. And I'm like, they all turn out the same, right? <laughs> I don't care if it's when calls the heart, love's abiding joy, straight from the heart, a boyfriend Christmas, or love's everlasting courage, they are all the same. <laughs> the challenge is this. Our lives do not turn out like that. That might be nice for an hour and a half program to make you forget about the real world, but when the Hallmark movie goes off, you're back to your life with breakups, engagements that have been broken, careers that are disappointing. You don't ride off in the sunset with somebody. Family conflict, dysfunctional behaviors. I mean, that's the real world. But that doesn't make for great movies, at least not on the Hallmark Channel. And yet, the psalmist here is talking to God about the mess and I love that the Bible is okay with the mess of our lives, that it's honest, that it's real, it's gutsy, it's earth level. Look at what happens in verse 5. He says, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. What is remarkable about lament is it takes your emotions and says, you are true, you are real, you are strong, but you are not in control. I am going to remember some particular things, but before I get to what I'm going to remember, I'm going to honestly deal with the struggling questions of my soul. And the psalmist begins asking a series of rhetorical questions. Notice them beginning in verse 7. He says, Will the Lord spurn forever? Secondly, Will he never again be favorable? I mean, just imagine someone in your small group or a Bible study or a friend over a cup of coffee, and you ask them, how are you doing? And they say to you, you know, I don't know if God is really favorable. For some of you, you would 100% freak out. And yet the psalmist here is wrestling with 
those sorts of questions. So before you jump in, you need to know why is this being said? What is the context in which my friend is expressing this? Because he continues and says, has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all times? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? No question. Does the psalmist believe that God has forgotten to be gracious? Does the psalmist believe that God's promises are at an end? Of course not. And the end of this psalm will bear out that the psalmist does not believe that to be true. But here's what you need to know. Complaint enters into the complicated reality of humanity by expressing to God things that we know aren't true but feel true nonetheless. God, I know you're not mean, but it feels like it today. What is a complaint? A complaint simply lays out what's wrong. Todd Billings, in his book Rejoicing in Lament, says this, if a person did not believe that God was sovereign, there would be no cause for lament. It is precisely out of trust that God is sovereign that the psalmist repeatedly brings laments and his petitions to the Lord. If the psalmist had already decided the verdict that God is indeed unfaithful, then they would not continue to offer their complaint. If you think God is unfaithful, then why complain to him? So what happens here is the psalmist is offering his humble, pain-filled complaint as a vital part of what it means for him to stay on the path of faithfulness. Now, we won't stay here. Complaints can't be a cul-de-sac of sorrow. If you just end in complaint, say amen, and you're done. You have not complained, just, you have not lamented, rather. You have just sinned. <laughs> because all you've done is just vomited the pain of your soul without bringing lament to its intended conclusion. Remember my definition. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Nonetheless, these challenging emotions that we face need to be put on the table for us to talk to God about them. James Montgomery Boyce, who passed through the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for 32 years, said this about these kind of questions. It is better to ask them than not to ask them, because asking them sharpens the issue and pushes us toward the right positive response. Doubts are better put into plain speech rather than lying diffused and darkening like poisonous mists in the heart. A thought, be it good or bad, can be dealt with when it is made articulate. There's been times that I've laid out my complaints on a piece of paper when my heart was just overwhelmed with all the sorrows, so I listed them out one after another, after another, after another, and by God's grace, I looked at my list and sometimes I've laughed. <laughs> That's what I'm burdened about. Six things on a piece of paper. Surely God could handle this. But by identifying them and articulating them, by honestly praying through them, my heart has helped. So friends, lament is the language of a people who believe in God's sovereignty but live in the real world of tragedy. When I was working on this material originally, I chronicled just the events in my church that I'd been a part of and was aware of in terms of the brokenness and the pain that was happening. 
For example, during that week, I was involved in a funeral for a precious man who died suddenly of a heart attack, tracked the progress of a teenager who was fighting bone cancer, prayed for a woman who has to face her rapist in court, prayed urgently to the Lord for a pregnant woman who learned she had breast cancer, and prayed for a young woman whose dad tried to take his life. That's just a week. And the thing is, every one of these believers knows that God is good. They all believe that he is faithful. They believe that God is in control. But yet, life is still hard. And part of the reason it's hard is because we believe the promises in the scriptures. And these people, these dear Christians, are fighting to believe those promises through the tears. That is the essence of what my wife was trying to express in her tear-filled complaint in the car. She believed that God was good with all her heart. But a blighted ovum, after a stillbirth, after multiple miscarriages, felt cruel. She knew it wasn't, but it felt that way. And so the Bible is full of this kind of language. At least a third of the Psalms contains laments, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But part of our challenge is that many of us are just not familiar with lament. We don't sing lament. We don't pray lament. And part of me wonders, could it be that our our love of comfort, our sense of prosperity, and frankly even our love of triumphalism is reflected in what we sing and what we write? And in what we pray? Is it possible that our unfamiliarity with lament is actually a byproduct of a subtle misunderstanding of Christian suffering? Of how Christians can suffer? Now surely you can complain and be sinful. You come to God with an attitude like, you owe me a happy life. You, how dare you do this to me? Well, brother or sister, you have then sinned. But when you come to God with a humble, hurting heart to say, God, I know you're good. I know you're in control. This thing is really, really hard. Help me. Help me. That's lament. Lament is humbly praying through the pain. So turn, complain, and now third, remember to trust. The psalm makes a pivot. All laments make a pivot somewhere with words like but or then or even so. And here we find it in verse 10. Then, there it is. Oh, I love that turn. Then I said, and notice the emphasis of will. I will appeal to this, to the years of the, most, of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember the wonders of old. One of the reasons that I'm thankful that you're in a gospel preaching church that regularly rehearses and teaches you the content of God's word is because you can't remember what you don't know. You need the regular diet of God's word to help you remember truths that will serve to guide you. And this is what the psalmist is doing. He is remembering, he is rehearsing, he is remembering the deeds of the Lord. In other words, he's taking his pain and he is pushing, he's pointing his heart towards what is true, even though his emotions may not even be there. In fact, look at verse 12. Yes, I will, or verse 11, yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder, he's pondering, he's thinking all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. He is taking his mind and pushing it towards the things that he knows that that is true. Asaph is looking back. He's reflecting on the works of God in Israel's past. 
What's happened here is his lament has brought him to the place where he is now remembering the numerous ways in which God has indeed proven himself to be trustworthy. So if you're a person who's a little older in life, I'll let you define what age that is. But you have more life in the rear view mirror than you have maybe in the front view. Brother, sister, we need your help. Because you have a unique perspective of the ways in which God's word has proven itself to be true. And you can rehearse the mighty works of God, not just in redemptive history, but in your history. To be able to say over and over and over, we have seen God to be faithful. We have seen very tangibly the ways in which God's promises have been brought to bear. What Asaph does is remind his heart what he knows to be true. So what, the reason I love lament is it gives hurting people the permission to grieve, but it doesn't give them permission to grieve aimlessly or selfishly. No, biblical lament is different. It redirects weeping people to what is true despite what they're walking through, and that is how lament helps you to walk between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's goodness. And then we come to a very interesting section in verses 13 through 20. It shifts from the historical works of God to the very character of God and then back to the historical work of God. He says, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Now, wait a minute. Just a few verses earlier, he had said, has God forgotten to be gracious? And now he's saying, what God is great like our God? If you're walking through suffering, you know exactly what this is like. Because one moment you could be in church singing, God moves in mysterious ways, Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. You say, yes, that's true. And then 30 seconds later, you're like, I don't know if it's going to work out. That's why grief is so exhausting. It's because you swing from, I believe, help my unbelief. I know you're real. Is this real? Unless you think that's sub-Christian, that's the way the psalmist walks through pain. He says, your way is holy. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is like our God? Verse 14, you are the God who works wonders. You make known your might among the peoples. Verse 15, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Now, read this next section carefully. He says, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the world when your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth shook and trembled. So notice this, this powerful manifestation of God's movement on earth. And then he says this, verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Think with me for a moment. What event is the psalmist talking about in that text? What event involved water and the passing through? Well, it was the Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea. Now, now why why would the writer of this psalm use that moment? Why would he end this lament with that? The reason is that the Exodus event was the signature historical redemptive event that the people of Israel would point to 
Think of it like the, the theological floor of their relationship with their creator. In the Exodus event, it was that moment when God said, you're my people, you're coming out. And when they were standing at the brink of the Red Sea and Pharaoh was coming up behind them and the people panicked and said to Moses, you brought us out here to kill us. Moses says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And the sea parts. They walk through and the sea collapses on top of Pharaoh's army and the people are on the other side of the shore looking at the devastation of what has happened and the deliverance of their, of their God. And this is the moment that defined them in terms of their redemption. That's why he goes there. Because when you are suffering and when you are lamenting, you need a floor. You need the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. Something you could anchor your theology in, something you can put your life into, the, the sure bedrock of something that defines who you are in terms of your relationship with your creator. And for the Israelites, it was the Exodus. Well, was it, what is it in the New Testament? Well, in the New Testament, rather than the Exodus, the ultimate event that anchors our relationship with our God is none other than the cross. So the floor of the floor of the floor of your suffering is the cross. Why is the cross important? Because in the cross, we see the unique tension of this looks awful, this looks bad. The Son of God has just been killed like a criminal. And then three days later, the rest of the story has been written. The Bible tells us that what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he gives the Apostle Paul this argument. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See what he's doing? He's taking us to the floor of the floor of the floor of the floor. That at the end of the day, if you don't know what to trust in and you don't know what to hope in, or if you're struggling in the midst of the fog of your suffering or hardship and you don't know what's going on, I can tell you assuredly why I do not know why cancer is in your life or why the breakup happened or why your marriage is in trouble or all the things happened. I can't explain all of that, but this one thing I do know, that Jesus Christ of Nazareth died and he was raised from the dead and someday he's going to come back and make everything right. That Jesus bought the right to make it right. And that is the floor of the floor of the floor of our suffering. And so in your pain, when you don't know what to say, you go back to the cross and remind yourself, this is the moment when God proved that he is for me. And this moment, this moment matters infinitely more than any worldly sorrow and suffering as hard and as painful as it is. There was a young man in our church that those of you who watch sports may know a little bit about. His name was Tyler Trent. He was a young man that battled osteosarcoma for a number of years and lost, a Purdue student. His dad is a dear friend of mine. And one day his dad called me when they were walking through the early days after Tyler's passing, and he said, what do I say if a reporter asks me, how can you thank God for this moment? What's my soundbite? What do I say? How do I communicate? And my answer to him was, Tony, talk to them about Good Friday versus Easter. You see, if you just look at osteosarcoma, something, a bad, horrible disease that took the life of a 21-year-old college student, you could look at that and say, 
That's awful. There's nothing good about that. And if that's all you see, that could be true. In the same way that if you just looked at the cross on Good Friday and that was the only story, all that you would see is just some man who hung on a cross, was terribly beaten, and it looked as though, even though he called himself a prophet, he wasn't. And if that's all you see, that might be your conclusion. But when you understand the cross in light of the resurrection, the script is flipped. Because now the cross does not become the worst moment in human history. It becomes the worst moment in human history that led to the greatest deliverance in human history. Now the cross through the empty grave is seen for what it is. And the key for those who follow Christ in the midst of hardship and difficulty is to stand in the gap between the cross and the resurrection saying, even so God is still faithful because he did it here and he's going to do it again. The healing for cancer, the relationship that you've always wanted, a child that you'd hope would be in your womb, that may not come. But you can still trust God in the midst of those sorrows and difficulties because he's proven himself to be faithful over and over and over. And here's what I know, I found it true in my own life, that with five, ten years, and able to look back, you can begin to see a little bit of the footprints of God, even though in the moment they are utterly unseen. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you know, friend, it could be that God is using pain in your life to awaken you to a few things that you really need to think about. Just the presence of pain in the world, the brokenness that's around us, is a regular reminder that something is wrong in the world. This is why when you go to a funeral, there's something about that moment that just is a reminder in fact, Solomon said, it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Why? Because you learn more at funerals than you do at parties. You go to a funeral, you think about life, like life ends. You think about the things that will be said about you, and the question that you have to wrestle with and it may be that God uses pain for you to ask this very question of what is the meaning of the universe? What is my meaning? And what do I do with the brokenness around me? And even more importantly, what do I do with the brokenness inside of me? And it may be that God's using this difficult situation in your life to help you realize that your problem, more than your job or your physical life or the relationships, the challenge is your heart. And you keep bringing you to all of these things. And those of us who have found Christ, we came face to face with the reality that our problem wasn't outside of us, it was actually inside of us. And Jesus comes to cleanse us, to forgive us, and to take over. That's what it means to be a Christian. Maybe you're here today and you're a new believer. You're enamored with everything that the gospel is. Praise God for your recent conversion. Can I just encourage you that you need to know and understand the promises of God because you will be tested. There will, there will be hardship that will come. The enemy doesn't want you to be faithful all the way to the end. And so as you hear the word, as you see promises in the Bible, collect them, get them inside your bones so that they can become the preservative agents for your life when hardship comes. Because, friend, it is going to come. And then rest knowing that you have a Savior who understands your struggles, God will never leave you. 
And then look around you, find an older Christian and ask him or her how they have seen this to be true in their life, and they can tell you. Third, maybe you're here today and you're a Christian, but you're tired. You're weary. Maybe as soon as I prayed my wife's prayer, Lord, I know you're not mean, but it feels like it today, that resonated with your soul. I'm so glad you're here. Some Christians decide to stop coming to church because they just are so sad and they feel like their life and where everybody else in the church is are in two very different planets. So if you came today and you're weary, praise God. Can I encourage you to not give God the silent treatment, to keep talking to him even through the pain? Can I encourage you to keep leaning into your sorrows and talk to God about them? You don't surprise God with what you're feeling. It's not as though God leans over to the Holy Spirit and says, did you know that Mark was feeling that way? God knows everything about you. So talking to him, why, why are we afraid to talk to God in the midst of our sorrow? And finally, if you're a seasoned believer, things that I've shared today you know are true, then friend, help other people to lament well. Allow the struggles and the pains in your life to become platforms for testimony about what God has done and resources to help other people. Be careful that you don't overly compare your experiences to everyone else's experience, but tell the story of what God has done in your life and the way in which God proved himself to be faithful. And in so doing, you can be a fellow lamenter along the hard path of life. Friends, we can lament and we can join in the lamentations of others when they express hard, painful, and challenging emotions. We can keep praying and keep wrestling. We can cry out to God in our pain. We can do so with the hope that one day God is going to make everything right. And here we are gathered on the Lord's Day between promise made and promise fulfilled. And part of the reason we gather is to remind ourselves that the Bible is true, Jesus is alive, and one day sorrows and suffering and pain will be no more. So friend, come to Jesus with your pain. Open your heart again and start talking to God about what is going on in your life. Be assured he loves you, he knows you, he cares for you, despite how hard life can be. Walk with your friend who is hurting, join him or her in their pain, and in our lament, let us help one another learn how to trust. Lament is a grace, a sweet grace, a hard grace. It's a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And there is grace for those who discover how to sing this minor key melody. Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, we thank you for your word, for the way in which it so clearly can be helpful for the struggles of our experience in this world. And Lord, I pray today that you would use this word and this sermon to be a help to those who are hurting. Thank you that you know all of the tears within our souls. You know prayers prayed for children that have wandered away. You know relentless requests for pregnancy. You know the struggles of loneliness. 
God, you know careers that have not turned out like we had hoped. You know betrayal, false accusation, unfair treatment. You know it all. And we're thankful that you are strong enough and big enough and mighty enough that we can come to you and say, how long, O Lord, how long? So Jesus, bring comfort, we pray, by your Spirit today and help us to keep trusting the one who keeps us trusting all the way to the finish line as we faithfully follow you. And we pray this in the authoritative name of the risen King of Kings. In Jesus' name, amen.